many people told you this was going to be stacked and fire. So, right now, man, I met this dude, Sci-Fi London, Twenty twenty-one. Yeah, it's twenty twenty-one. Right? And look, he's a cool dude. Jamming, we didn't have a conversation. He had a film out with Swipe. Just couldn't, you know, schedules is crazy. Um, then. This year, we had a new joint. We were talking. I couldn't make the person. Um, and we just couldn't get something tied up. But finally, I was like, yo, new dad's out for this weekend. And I go, hey, he's tied up for this time. He gave me more time than expected. So, mad props to Ed, man. I appreciate the fuck out of him. Um, yeah, we are talking to Edward Douglas, and it is a good one. It's So, as mentioned, Ed had a, a, a short out called Swipes. Let me take a quick little look at that. Okay, so people, swiped, right? This is, uh, you know, new short film from Ed Douglas. And uh, it's an interesting one for sure, right? It, it kind of deals with the whole ooh, dating situation, but this is in the future. It's in the future, son. Right, which which is always uh that's always an interesting one, you know what I mean? Like because we get to see how people play with that, right? How how people want to interpret you know what the future is, you know. So um yeah, we, we get that interesting look, right? So this is uh directed by Ed. Uh, it is written by Daniel Roy. Um, it's produced by Ed Nicola Chapman and Peter Seaton Clark. Um, Daniel Best handles the music. Deborah Bode cinematography. Roy edits the film. Uh, makeup is Nicole Nicole Hyena Hyena uh, Julia. Cry is um she helps with filming and just all of that kind of jazz. Um also Ed and Stuart Neig um handle the effects. Uh and there's also help from Rick Bade. So it's a small, small, small cast. We've got um Nicola Chapman is Melody. Um Peter Seaton Clark is Gregory. Okay, our futuristic peoples. I mean, they're all futuristic. I should say our virtuals. And Julia Streich is Claire, our heroine, as it were. <laughs> and the gist of the film, people, is this: Okay, 
you've met your match. When Melody decides to swipe a few hot guys on her augmented reality dating app, um, she meets her match in a man who may be more or less than meets the eye. Dum, dum, dum. So, yes, there you go. Uh, now, this, like, it, it's, a, it's kind of a problem because, you know, it feels like it's kind of saying like an avant-garde kind of, you know, wine bar, right? Nice swanky, just early gaunt. But it is the future. You know, we get like this augmented reality. You know, the visuals pop up in front of her and she's like swiping through and using this kind of ring. You know, I mean, like that's the kind of smartphone activator, as it were, right? Little, nice little elegant thing, you know what I mean? And so we, we get her swiping through and then these conversations. And um, yeah, it, it's that kind of feels like, it, it, you know, it's probably not that far away, right? Probably not not that far away, but it's it's just kind of this whole navigating the pitfalls of online dating and and the craziness happens, and you just kind of wonder, yeah, what would it be like with you know augmented reality, with, with virtual reality, with just all of these different things? Will it improve? What will happen? And um, you know, if, if we're going by um, Ed and Roy. Uh, it might not, <laughs> it might not, but you know, so I mean, it, it might be easier to spot, right? Might be easier to spot the inconsistencies, the glitches. Who the fuck knows? Who the fuck knows? This is it's a very short, short, right? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a short, right? It's, it's just a few minutes, but you know, they really do capture this little moment in time because essentially this is you know just like a, a, a break right in between stuff you're doing you take some time you just take a few moments you go oh, let's have a little swipey swipe right and that's what this feels like right this little snapshot of time you know someone trying to find someone and then having to go through that minefield. So it's really captured well, very good performances from our cast. It's a fun, it's a fun little film, right? A fun little glimpse into the future, people. If you like shorts, if you like Ed's other work, then you'll want to check out Swipe. Okay, people, and now, now you get it next new show. Okay, people, so Edward J. Douglas is back with a new sci fi short. This one is called You Run. So Douglas directs and co-writes with Daniel Roy. Um, it is executive produced by Douglas, Eric Bellinger, Reese Lynn, and Leah Soyjoy. The music is from uh, Denise Olgeda and Genevieve Vincent. 
Cinematography is Travis Cosal. Uh, Douglas also edits the film. Uh, makeup is Karen Cox, Aaron Davis, and Stephanie Mazio. Production um, was Enrique Ortez. Daniel Bailey, Johannes Abart, Chelsea Boyd Gibson, and Roy Handel, the graphic design and effects. Uh, our cast, we have Jody, played by Mayumi Roller. Trent is played by Philip Mullins Jr. And Brenda is Juliana Darby. So the gist of the film is this. The virtual trainer that won't quit on you. All Jody wants is a healthy distraction from a bad breakup. But she begins to fall for the charming AI running trainer. So, yeah, we um, we start off the film. Right, We see Jody. She's out ready for a run, gets a message. And, um, oh, her, her, the dude she's seeing dumps her. Dumps her. Pretty cold. Pretty cold. And, um, but, you know, you get a feeling they were also running buddies. So she's, you know, looking for a distraction. Looking for something that won't let her down, which then leads her to you run. We do get the return of the black ring people. Uh, and yeah, it's it's this kind of running system that also you know motiv motivation kind of joint going on. Right. So, you know, you can do this, just all of those sort of things, incorporating, you know, some of the running apps that are already on the market. Right. So zombies and, you know, things such as that, like calorie trackers. I mean, ain't going to lie. Right. This kind of software is it, it, definitely that thing that we've been you know, promised in the future, this kind of incorporation of, you know, all of these elements that will help us. But here's the thing, right? You can see that Jody is, from having something as a distraction, you know, and you think doing a sporting event, yeah, that's going to help, right? The endorphins, burning off all that energy, Right, just that hard grind. It's definitely gonna have you not really thinking about other shit. But right, I don't know. For me, it, it, it kind of you get the sense that she's replaced this one thing with this new addiction, right? And we just see her world become consumed with this running. You know, blowing off work, blowing off her friends, just all of this stuff, just looking, trying to get to that next level, right? Feeling bad, but then not wanting to disappoint, right? And although 
you know, as it says in this copy, right, it, she's falling for the, the AI. But I think there's an element of that, but it also seems that it's like quitting on that is quitting on herself, right? That, that That's the kind of thing that has now become tied into her. And, yeah, so we see her just pushing and pushing and pushing, which is crazy. But like all addictive things, we can try to, you know what I mean, move on from them. But can you really move on from these things? You know what I mean? How, how deep do you go, right? So we see all of this. Like it's a it's a fun it's definitely a fun short right because we you know it, there's not a whole huge cast or anything like that but we definitely get this insight into Jody right and what she's trying to do right trying to get over a breakup but is this the most healthy way around it you know. On paper, it seems like it is, but really, is it? So I think we get we do get this nice little nuanced vibe of Jody just in a short space of time, right? Obviously, there'd be more, but from what we what we see, you know, I think it, yeah, you can see that she wants to do this thing and she wants to get help, like. It's not that she's unhealthy, but she wants to get healthier. She wants to, you know, meet this challenge. But, you know, there's this realisation. There's this realisation. And as we leave it, it's how far has she come? You know what I mean? Like, does she actually realise this is bad for her, right? Or, Or will she succumb like it, it, you do want to know what happens right it is very intriguing in that regard so yeah i i think douglas you know he continues the good work um yeah definitely interested to see what he does next so if you get a chance i think you run is a, a fun little short you might want to check out people Okay, it's probably time to get to the man himself. All right, people. So let's get to the interview, Edward. Okay, people. So I'm here with Edward J. Douglas, writer, director, producer. Yeah, I mean, you do a lot of different stuff, Ed. Thank you for. well, we, we finally got this sorted out. It, it took a while, which I will admit that was probably more my end. But I appreciate you stopping by. How's everything been going? Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we uh, we talked about doing this back last year uh, after Sci-Fi London 2020. And then yep, I, yep. I, um, I was over no, 20, 2021, right? And then yes. I was over for 2022 and I didn't uh, didn't get to see you there. No, I, I just got, man, I got tied up. I was I was doing this crazy job, which was a lot of crisis management. 
having to handle and it was yeah just a little hectic so I wasn't able to make the festival this year how was it it was it was good so this was the second festival I was actually able to attend in person so the last two years I've had a handful of short films doing the festival rounds and I've been able to go to so few festivals because of COVID so last year Mm. I went to sci-fi London which was the first um which the uh, which was the first festival I could go to for two short films after a whole season. And, and yeah, I got to go back this year. So last year was uh, with a sci-fi short called Swiped. And this year was with uh, another sci-fi short called You Run, which was um, kind of like a spiritual successor to, to Swiped. Same kind of world, same idea. See, I wondered if they were in the same universe because the ring... Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we, we didn't make, so um, for, for context for the, um, um, for the folks listening and watching. So this was a, uh, it's a, it's a near future world where, you know, platforms like Apple, um, Android, they've moved their apps from just being on phones to being in their contact lenses. So, I mean, that's definitely coming. I mean, mm. I think we're going to see that happening in the next decade or so. Um, these things are already moving into glasses for augmented reality. So the augmented reality is when you can see the graphics um, through your glasses, through contact lenses, um, displayed around in the world. Um, yeah, like so we imagine twenty forty one, right? Yeah, we we imagined a world where the the apps we use today are just evolving into that space. So whereas today we have Apple Watches, um, we thought, okay, what's what's next? How do we track? Um, track your movements interactions so we developed a ring design which was kind of based on an extrapolation of real tech today that can track your hand gestures and can track a bit of your environment and uh, and we imagined using that as your control interface so yeah we we didn't write them as the same story world but i'm definitely imagining and envisioning like these similar worlds with the rings and the same kind of contact lenses same idea that this is um this isn't a sci-fi future like we, we always talk about like in the Marvel movies, Tony Stark has his blue flickery graphics on the Iron Man heads up. This is mm. exactly what Apple would design in a handful of years. And that's how we really approached it. Like it feels so familiar, less yet slightly just a few steps into the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, you know, because I think with... Um... Yeah, with with well, let's go with swiped, right? It, it's yeah. this kind of dating world and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So, was it kind of just that full of just all the fake profiles you come across and all of that? So, bringing that to life. Yeah. So, um, yeah, swiped. I, I'll assume anyone watch uh, watching or listening to this had a chance to watch. It's online, and uh, um, Kevin, I assume you'll you'll put a link up to that. Um, yeah. It, it was, uh, so that was written by my writing partner, Dan Roy. We were jamming one day, we, as we're always just talking about different sci-fi ideas, jamming one day on, um, on what'll happen when, well, this is spoiler territory, um, what'll happen when chatbots and all the other annoyances, the modern internet, get into augmented reality. And that included like chatbot avatars who you think are real, but their AI is actually really, really dumb, just like you you have a profile picture that pops up on your messenger and tries to trick you into conversation. The profile picture looks like a real person, but as soon as you get, um, you know, a couple 
lines into the chat. They have nothing going on. It's not, it's like artificial stupidity. Um, yeah. So that's where it came from. So we're jamming on that, chatting about that. And a couple of weeks later, he was at a writing retreat and just banged out the script. And that was pretty much exactly what we, um, what we shot. Ironically, the dating app thing wasn't part of the script at oh. all, which which feels totally strange even to me now thinking back because we because uh, the opening is about her swiping through dating app um, profiles. Then she gets a um, she gets this man who's like a bit of the man of her her dreams who totally disappoints her. When we shot it, she was just swiping through Instagram photos, and this guy interrupted her. Uh... Um, when we when we uh, got into the editing, we hit this point where um, people people didn't really connect with the melody character. They didn't really care about her that much. So we realized, okay, go, going back to like film school one on one, how do we fix that? So we realized we need to give her something something that she wants that she's interested in to get the audience to invest in her. So what she loses at the end of the movie is an attempt at romance or at least a hookup. So what we want need to give her at the beginning of the movie is that desire to escape into the idea of romance and hookups. So, so we added an in, we always knew she was a lawyer, just working at some stuff. So we added a moment of her, um, then insert shot of her on um, her doing some legal documents, was which is if you uh, pause and zoom in, it's actually a lawsuit against you run. Um, which, uh, which Dan wrote up all, a whole bunch of details for. And then, um, so we show her, show the work that she's trying to escape from, contrasting it from what she wants, which is um, swiping through these dating apps, uh, dating app profiles, and then the guy interrupts her. So as soon as we did that, it clarified the character so much, and it gave an even more grounding hook to that story, which seems so obvious now when we watch it. Even the name of I mean, the, the original name of the, uh, of the short, when we wrote it, was called Chatbot. Uh, which we knew we'd have to change because it, it was a spoiler for the turn at the end. Um, but yeah, it's just an example of like these these things just evolve as you shoot them, as evolve as you uh, as you create them. You never know how they'll they'll turn out, and you just kind of have to react to the material and react to how it feels um, uh, when you're when you're making it. So yeah, I can't imagine how we would have made it, how we even thought we didn't need the dating app aspect when we wrote it and shot it, but. We just didn't think of it, even though it's so clear and obvious now. Mm. Well, I mean, I think like you can get people messaging you on like Instagram and mm. Facebook that you don't know. I guess so that's I, I, all the time. Yeah. yeah, I guess there is that, but it's a bit because you then have to go into the separate inbox to kind of then look at it and accept it. So there's more process to rather yeah. than dating it's more instant yeah I, I think i think the the facebook messenger and instagram um filters are better that you don't get quite as spammed as much as you used to but i'd i used to get all sorts of messages from like people with random supermodel looking um profile pictures <laughs> um, actually i get that on whatsapp a lot still um so those uh, people aren't so great so yeah that, so that was the inspiration and then the dating the dating app um graphics when we've got that in we tied that together just with footage we had and it, it just it worked it just clicked nicely mm, mm. and so yeah so with with that sort of process like how long does that kind of take you know i mean having having some screenings having people look at it and mm -hmm. then 
you know, thinking about, okay, where can, how can we alter this and make it work better? Like, yeah, well, I don't have know. a, uh, I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me of how long we were editing it, but uh, Dan, Dan did the first cut. Um, that was a, maybe a week or so on and off. He was poking at it. And then I did a little bit of polish and then we got in front of some people. So, and then once we saw, okay, there's, there's some pieces here that we want to um, fill in. There's probably, you know, maybe a week and a half, two weeks of actual work in that edit. Um, but that was um, spread over quite a bit of time because there's other projects, mm. um, other work happening. Um, once we got that locked, then the graphics took some time. So we had a, a wonderful graphics designer um, named Jesha Nanthakumar, who's a world-class like augmented reality designer who we used to um, work in video games together. And he was excited about exploring these kind of graphics and using a short film uh, as a test bed for it. So, so then... Uh, during post-production COVID hit. So he, he was delayed. Um, I had other projects going on. It ended up taking total about 10 months to finish the whole short um, because of the, the graphics, a bunch of delays with sound, with, um, with um, yeah, with just all the components plus, plus COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, visual effects wise, there was like, maybe four or five big, maybe let's say seven, six or seven big shots that feel like effects. So the, uh, the flickering characters, the, um, the uh, motion graphics, but then there's another like 15 hidden shots um, that you don't see. So the actors did a ton of um, overlapping dialogue because that was their rhythm. They got the best performances that way. So then yet we did a lot of little split screens to make sure that um, the, like the person on the foreground was static when they needed to be static and wasn't talking, little things like that. So it was right. a couple months total um, overall. Okay. And when do, when doing something like this, right, which is set in the future, but not, you know, crazily far in the future, and you're thinking about, okay, how will this look, right? What is the... Was there a lot of back and forth on that to be like, oh, let's do it and be like, ah, it might be a bit too futuristic. Let's pair it back yeah. a little, or you know. Yeah, well, there's so there's two there's two sides of that. One is the graphics design, both in you running and chatbot, figuring out what does this future interaction look like. How how futuristic is too futuristic? And there's a bit of back and forth because on one hand you wanna you wanna make it look like something say Apple would do. But also, what would Apple do in seven, ten years? Where are design trends going that you can anchor into? Mm. Um, and we're probably a bit off the mark of that, but we'll see. We'll see when we get there. Um, and then there's the stylistic um, uh, aspects, like the Tinder-style app in Swiped is very stylized. And that feels like we're trying to make it feel like a cool modern branded style and not uh, same with the friender style instagram app in um in you run trying to make it feel stylized but not like a weird futuristic graphic um mm. yeah so so that was one thing that took some time to find the line the other one is the world itself um the design of the world we want to put hyper futuristic um elements into the world so like the orlando skylines in you run we want to enhance those so 
that's something you see in a lot of movies. 50 years in the future, you watch Westworld and you see the, the recognizable LA skyline, but there's new buildings. Um, so how much of that do we do? And so that's that came down to two things. Um, first is budget. So we're, both of these movies were tiny budget films. So we had a lot of, uh, we, we needed to put the money where the story was and not on, um, and, and not trying to embellish every piece of the world. Um, yeah. Just for, for, for sake of uh, resources. The other thing is when, when I look out the window today, the world doesn't look startlingly different than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, mm. There's a lot of little things change. Like I listened out my window this morning and I was hearing electric cars more than uh, petrol cars. Um, that's a change. Um, some signage is a little bit different. There's slowly, there's new buildings going up. If you look today to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, cars definitely look very different. There's more like bright LED screens, at major centers for advertising. But the incremental change year over year isn't night and day. So we felt like really the way people interact with the world today versus 10 years ago, um, the big differences in the world are how people interact with each other and in the world, not so much mm. what the world looks like. Um, um, the other thing that we, we knew we wouldn't really be able to tackle is futuristic fashion. That's incredibly hard. Like what is fashion 10 years ago versus today? A lot of subtle evolutions and change that I am in no way, um, in no <laughs> way um, qualified to talk about. What will fashion look like in 10 years from now? No idea. We didn't even want to get into that. And um, I mean, I love futuristic fashion. When I watch Star Trek Next Generation, those ridiculous, shiny, silky guitars. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hilarious, <laughs> wonderful, and absurd. And we were like, no, we, we don't want to worry about any of that. Ten years from now, the world is going to look very similar with some embellishments. But what we're focusing on is the new ways people interact with the world and with each other in the world through technology, not what shiny new buildings or like augmented reality billboards will be up everywhere. And mm. one, of, one of my colleagues said, well, shouldn't the, the bar in Swiped be covered in, um, in like um, augmented, augmented advertising or like just like holograms and stuff? Like, well, that's not really what the world or the story is about. And hopefully like we see, Lots of bars today, especially in Canada, less so in the UK where you are, where there's TV screens covering every like corner of the bar. And then you see some bars without any. And I think mm. those will still exist. So. Well, yeah, because you always get the the throwback places. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be like, oh, this one's themed like the 1940s and this one's themed like a classic sports bar. And this one, you know what I mean? So I think there will always be that. So yeah. regardless of, you know, I mean, yeah, there might be the place that is just lit up with augmented, you know, fimni bobs. But then you'll have the, the one that, yeah, be like, no, this one feels like it's 2010. You know, you can go in and you feel like yeah. you're all there's, the way back then. Yeah, there's bars that I go into today that look exactly like they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So, so yeah, we had these conversations and some of it came down to aesthetic choices and some of it came down to story choices. Um, same with, with you run during the 10 K race scene at the end of the first act. Um, we thought about, okay, do we want to put up like augmented reality billboards and advertisements like across the, the race course, like you see on like 
unlike um, um, car races, um, race car courses. And ultimately we realized there's no real space for them. They're going to be distraction. That's not mm. where the story is. It could make the world look shinier, but it's not where the story focuses. And um, I think there's a lot of sci-fi that tries to cram the world as full of cool stuff as possible when maybe that effort should be put to uh, making sure the story and the characters are as rich as possible. Yeah. And as, as you said, right, I, I think with that, right, I'd imagine, you know, with, with the, the running apps and the, the, the events themselves, they'd be putting in some sort of blocker to stop all those ads because it would be distracting to the runners. Or, so, or I, I imagine with the running apps, they were going to, they probably would get a lot of sponsorship and plaster a ton of ads everywhere they can um, within like their ecosystem that they control. Because the amount of advertisements you see on apps and websites these days, um, I can't imagine that's going to, we're going to see less of it in the future. Mm. And that's one aspect that we didn't really put it. Well, I was going to say we didn't put in swipe in you run, but the whole conceit of you run starts off with somebody who's just gone through a breakup and she gets an incredibly targeted ad that even uses her face and her image to show her an aspirational idea of what her future could be. And then gives her a, a running trainer that's perfectly calibrated to her personality to get her totally hooked. Um, on the right kind of right kind of charm, charisma, looks, everything that um, that would get her hooked. Mm. So it's it's very much in that of that world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is it about sci-fi that you know? What I mean, kind of entices you to play in that sandbox. Ed? Oh man! So I started off as a just watching Star Trek, watching Star Trek with my dad. Uh, okay okay before we go any further ed i've got to yeah. ask you because I, I i was having this uh argument with my girl the other day what star trek is the best star trek well what everyone can have their own best star trek of course because everyone's different and, and star <laughs> trek speaks differently to different people um my my best star treks i grew up with star trek the next generation i watched that most of it on first run um um, and that crew is my, that's like my family. And Data was a character that I really related to, an, an outsider trying to figure out how to be, how to connect with people. I grew up as a, as a, as a weird outsider, awkward kid. I had Tourette syndrome. I had struggles with emotions. I was, I was different. And Data was, for, for good and bad, Data was a role model for me, like to show that an outsider could connect but also i had a lot of emotional dysregulation issues so i wished i would be like data who could shut off his emotions um which wasn't necessarily the healthiest tool but it helped me um, when i was young mm. um so that so that was my first trek it, um i just finished a rewatch of deep space nine and that's just utterly phenomenal the number of incredible episodes incredible characters character arcs I, for me, that is that is the peak of Star Trek storytelling um, so far, both with creating a, a huge diverse cast um, whose worlds and lives you get to know that just details and stories compound 
um, upon each other to have just amazing resonance by by the la in the last couple years. Um, and they and that happened both in one-off episodes as well as big story arc episodes. And they're able to kind of like balance those two. And I'm really appreciating um, how Strange New Worlds is doing a bit of that. Um, they're they're taking. I find a page from both Next Gen and Deep Space Nine really nicely. I mean, the show feels like it should be like a, in a way, and uh, a sly little reboot of the original series. But what it has, it, the original series was about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. It was about Kirk and yeah. those two guys. It was about that triangle, right? Um, Strange New Worlds is more like TNG in the sense that you have a crew in each episode has a has a you know an adventure of the week but is shifting its focus to let you get to know these different characters in, um, oh, in different okay. ways um really nicely while planting all sorts of really nice seeds of long of of character development in the way ds9 did um while um that has that's already paying off so yeah that's it's well done it's yeah it's a mix of what worked in tng and ds9 in some really nice ways i really I really enjoyed Picard, and I really I, I think also yeah. there's the, the, the next generation kind of yeah. connection there. I, yeah, I think I, yeah as as a as a nostalgia factor, I really enjoyed Picard. I really appreciate a lot of what Discovery does and tries to do. It's not my favorite show, um, but what's interesting about Picard and Discover and uh, and Discovery is those are both single protagonist shows. Mm. And they really focus on a single character and then have a supporting cast. Whereas as a Star Trek fan, I'm not quite used to that. So I'm still, I still feel like, but I want to know about that character. I want to know about that character. Um, but they're single protagonist shows with long story arcs. And most of the rest of Trek has been ensemble shows um, or even the original series kind of a, like that, they had that little trifecta of characters. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's my long rambly answer. Um, there's no best Trek. Everyone has can can love Trek for what it brings to them. S certain Treks will speak to people in ways they would never speak to me because of who they are and where they are at in their lives and how that show speaks to them. So, um, yeah, I, I I would say that I was probably Deep Space Nine, mm. but Deep Space Nine from. I think it's maybe season three or four where Cisco shaves his head and mm -hmm. Wolf comes into it. Yeah. I I, I found... Head shaving was season three and Worf shows up in season four. That sounds right. right. Okay. Because, yeah, before that, Cisco just seemed a bit too passive. Mm -hmm. And it, like, he didn't, the character wasn't fully fleshed out. But yeah. then it became like it's. It seemed that they found their stride with him. That he was like, yeah. now he was this this fully fleshed out person with his views and everything like that. Yeah. And so I enjoy. I I kind of feel as well that D Space Nine maybe benefited from Babylon Five being around because they're both that, on the space yeah. station. So yeah. it's kind of like. You know, they they'd be like, "Oh, what? everyone's liking that. Let's try and up our game a little bit." And I've never actually watched um, Babylon. I've I've tried to watch the first episode, and I really struggled with it. And I want to go back and try again, but it's a series that I that I missed. Yeah, so Cisco. Yeah, that, that's a show. Yeah, DS Nine characters did evolve and change quite a bit over the years. You had I'm hmm. um, Doctor Bashir, who was really kind of annoying and terrible in the first year or two, and he really came into his own beautifully yeah. later on. But on this rewatch, 
what I found really interesting was I loved Odo as a character. Um, when I was a kid, I loved him, just this this gruff, mysterious outsider. But rewatching, I realized in the last few seasons, once he learns who he is, where he's from, he develops a relationship with Kira, which I, I love the relationship. But overall, once his mystery was unraveled and I knew who he was and his, his struggles about how does he balance between his people and his sense of duty and honor, I didn't I wasn't interested in the character nearly as much. In the last couple seasons, yeah. I don't care about Odo the way I did in the first few seasons. I loved I loved this this character who who was like hell bent on honor, not honor, but like his duty and justice, his all of his witty scenes with Quark. And he was this investigator. I love like spy investigator mm -hmm. shows, and he was like the avatar of that kind of stuff. And in the later seasons, he just wasn't that quite that anymore. Um, so it's interesting to see how my like uh, through different eyes, my uh, appreciation for different characters and stories change. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that character is a bit similar to Niles on Frasier, right? <laughs> While he's chasing Daphne, he's interesting. And then mm. once they get together, it's like, eh, I don't care that's about really, it. That's a really great way to, to look at it. The the chase is interesting. The uh yeah, once because I and I, I loved the episodes when Odo and Kira got together and it was it was yeah, it was wonderful to see that pairing and that matchup and and I really enjoyed Kira in the relationship. But mm. yeah, was, Odo wasn't as interesting once once that uh, that's happened. Kira's another wonderful character that i appreciate way more now as an adult than i did as a kid somebody who's trying to find her kind of like captain kirk in undiscovered country um a character whose war is over and she's trying to find purpose in a new different world uh, and somebody going from a terrorist to part of the establishment it's really mm. fascinating stories and i haven't seen much of that kind of story on tv at all so somebody i heard somebody say online or uh, is somewhere online that i saw recently is is Star Trek Next Generation is an example of an aspirational utopia in the future. DS9 is a show that's about the hard work it takes to create and maintain that utopia. Hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah. That, that, that is kind of true when you think about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my, my only... My only kind of real gripes with Deep Space Nine was the length of the stories, right? Because I think with Babylon 5, right, you, you had a season dealing with the build-up to the war, a season with the occupation and the war, where in Deep Space Nine, when the Romulans took over, it was like, I think, two, maybe three episodes, and it, and it was just like, ah, oh, I wanted more. I mean, like, it, you know what I mean? I, I wanted more of that. It didn't feel as impactful mm. being so short. But even being what it was, it was still probably some of the longest stories of Star Trek. Yeah. So they yeah. were trying something for sure, but it was just like, ah, I just want a bit more. Yeah, until the, uh, until the Discovery and Picard era came about. I, I, I suppose Enterprise did a bit of that as well. But yeah, there. I think DS9 was still really finding, finding what can be done in a balance of adventure of the week, um, balanced with um, long story arcs, and yeah, it was wonderful exploration. And, mm. uh, yeah, 
Uh, yeah. yeah, Ron Ron Moore was one of the one of the many writers part of that, and his then his work kind of like riffing on that that he did in Battlestar, and now with um from for all mankind, I I love his writing, I love his work. Um, mm. yeah, I think he's got a new um, I think he's working on a Disney series. I think yeah. I think that's what I read. Mm. I don't know. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> a lot of shows out there, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to watch the third season of For All Mankind that started a few weeks back. So it's coming up on my watch list. Uh-huh. So what? Now this is the thing, right? Which I've, I've, yeah, I find interesting because writing, like you know, I've, I've tried, I've, I've played around with some stand-up, right? And it's like. It's difficult watching stand-up specials because you're like, I don't want to steal any premises, right? Because when late at night, when you're thinking of ideas and you're just like, oh, that's so good. Oh, that's a great concept. And then you suddenly think of like, hold on, didn't Segura say something similar? Oh, <laughs> I can't, I oh, no, I can't do that. So it's just like, you know what I mean? Try not to watch too much so you're not, being too overly so you're not taking premises and things like that but where you enjoy you know sci-fi like how do you ensure that you know what you're creating isn't too similar to stuff that you may have consumed down the line that's a really great question i mean i i watch a lot of different genres i watch sci-fi watch a lot of drama i watch well let me pull out my my list of the shows i'm working on at the moment or i'm watching at the moment um okay uh, and one did you ever watch foundation on apple yes yes i did Um, oh that was i really um, enjoyed i mean like right now i'm watching a lot of genre i I finished recently finished only murderers in the building which is like a comedy mystery show watching dope sick which is about um the um oxycontins right the oxycontin watching the boys season three watching miss marvel i'm doing a rewatch of voyager i'm watching the last season of better call saul i've tried to start watching squid game and I'm, i've struggled with it i'm re-watching sense eight and i just finished kenobi um so so quite a range of things mm, mm. Um, and i've recently tried to start watching Shit's creek but i haven't gotten too far into that um but a lot of a lot of what i a lot of the shows I watch, I watch with my writing partner, Dan Roy. He's in Bulgaria. I'm in Canada. And we sync up online some mornings and watch. So we just finished watching Kenobi together. We're watching Strange New Worlds together. And we've watched some bad things together, too. Good things and bad things. But what I love about it is we can talk about it. We can share what works and what doesn't. And it often mm-hmm. becomes a film school for us because we can stop and say, I love that idea. Why didn't that work? So, for example... Mm. Um, on the show Foundation, I loved the first episode so, so much. It was an incredible, not just an incredible retelling that first short, uh, that first novella from the first Foundation book. It enhanced it and put a, uh, enhanced the point of view character really beautifully. It added some elements that were brilliant. But afterwards, I didn't like the rest of the season. I wasn't interested in it. It didn't have the spark. Uh... And the, kind of the, what, it didn't have what I loved about that first um, foundation book. So Dan and I get to talk about all these things, not just the ideas, but the craft, how things work, yeah. how things are structured, what 
um, what works, what doesn't, what tricks and tools we can say, oh, I loved how they did that. Not what they did, but the tools or techniques they did. So I think when I'm, yeah. when I'm watching other media, I'm not, I'm not thinking about what ideas to steal. I'm thinking about what techniques work, what, how, how things are done, how like this, here's a great scene about um, where exposition is given in beautiful, understated, subtle ways that are rooted in character action. Like those are the things that I say, they did that so well. I want mm. to, I want to remember that and do that um, some other time. Like uh, how do, how do I use that kind of technique? Um, because when I'm trying to think of stories, yeah, you can get into the whole, like, has someone else done this? Has someone else done that? Over the years, I've tried really, really, really hard to figure out what stories can only I tell, what's authentic to me, yeah. what's authentic to my world and my experience, or at least how, what filters can I use to bring that authenticity um, to it? And, and, um, and I think it's really easy for people of like of my background, my generation to have grown up watching so much media with characters that look like me doing heroic things. It's really easy to just riff on what we've seen before and just keep copying and churning out similar things. So mm. I'm really trying to avoid that and dig into myself. So for example, um, I'm trying to move away from short films. Now it's time for features, but if I do one last short film, it's about my childhood. It's about, it's about struggling with my emotional dysregulation as somebody with Tourette's. It's struggling on about how I wanted to connect with people and make friends and both embrace those parts of me, but also run and hide. It's about the kind of masks that I would wear as a kid that really I've spent a lot of my adult life wearing and now trying to, trying to work on that um, in my own personal development, like really try to find stories that are authentic to me and then I'm not not so much at risk of copying other media out there if no one else is telling that 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 story. Um, and then also trying trying to be inspired by stories around me. So um, you run, for example, was inspired by um, uh, partially inspired by people that I know who've developed challenging relationships with or a healthy a healthy outlet like running can become um, life consuming, almost compulsive. Mm. What happens when, when healthy things can, um, can take over your life in unhealthy ways. Um, so I try to find like rooted authentic anchors into stories. And often like Dan and I will come up with story seeds of really cool ideas, but if we can't find like an authentic character or something authentic to really root it into, um, we might give it a miss because it, um, it doesn't really speak to us on a deeper level other than a cool gimmick. Yeah. So I don't know if there's any perfect way. There's so many brilliant storytellers out there. Um, whatever I do, I'm sure someone else will have a riff on it or vice versa. I just kind of have to let that go and do your best. I mean, how many times have we seen two movies in a year come out that almost have the same, like they practically have the same trailer? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think less so now, but... But I remember the 90s, early 2000s, two animated movies about bugs, two, uh, two mm -hmm. disaster movies about about asteroids. Yeah, there was two Snow White films. Yep. And yeah. wasn't there two Robin Hood ones came out around the same time? 
or were going to, and then maybe one got pushed back. Yeah, I don't, rem- I don't remember. But yeah, so you just have to let go and do your best. And I think one of the, an, an important thing is to to know your biases, know your know where your biases are coming from. If you think something is really cool, say, hey, is it is it cool because it's something authentic of you that you care about, or is it because you've seen something like that? I think it's easy to chase trends. Yes, um, and Yeah, I think you, you got to be aiming. You, you can't be chasing trends because these projects take so damn long that by the time you get it out, the trend will be three years old or three mm. years old. Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to um, Rogan the other day and Mike Jug, Mike Jug, Judge, yeah, the biggest and dude. Yes, yeah. he, he was on and he's talking about idiocracy and how when they started to make it, Uggs weren't out and so the uh the costume design was like oh these we should have people wear these shoes they're ugly they're not gonna pick you know get uh, no one's gonna be doing them but it took i think he said two years for the film from that point because of some stuff then uggs were all over the place Mm -hmm. so it's just like you know i mean you try and do something before you know something might possibly blow or yeah and it's difficult Right, yep. because you, you don't know how things are going to uh, develop in that respect. Yeah, I think you just have to be authentic to what moves you, and hope that the audiences resonate. I, I personally, I feel, I feel that. I mean, I think about a, a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg, whose films resonate with so many people, and he he practically developed the modern blockbuster. Um, he and Lucas, but I don't feel like he did that in a calculated way. I don't mm. think he looked at a whole bunch of data and said, this is the movie, I, the kind of movie I need to make to hit a, a huge audience. I think he made what felt right and interesting to him. I think he he had some themes. Generally, in his, there's a lot of themes in his movies around fatherhood, um, sons and fathers uh, especially, that he was drawn to, and that happens to resonate with a lot of people. It wasn't calculated. He just got really lucky that what he was interested in resonated with a lot of people and was able to make that. Um, he, of course, did it with incredible craft. Um, but I think when people chase what feels right and authentic to them, I feel like if they have the opportunity to make it and get through the struggle of getting it out, the audience, if it's, if it's there for your vision, will be there. It's a struggle to, to, to not chase what you think will be resonant with audiences. And I think some people do find success calculating what they think will resonate with audiences and aiming for that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Because what if, I'm trying to think now, what if I want to make something that resonates with me, but with nobody else in the world? Is it mm. worth how, how do you do that? Um, what if your tastes and style don't resonate with anybody? And I, that probably happens. Um, yeah. So. I, I yeah. think the interesting thing about you making a short kind of based on your childhood is that, like, I've, I've you know, had conversations and heard conversations with people who had Tourette's and, you know, 
the mechanisms that they use to get through it. And it's always different, right? So it's just like what you create isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to be the same as what someone else would have yeah. done. In that, and so that's what kind of makes it interesting and compelling because you get to see how someone has navigated these moments in life. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, huh, would I have done that? Like, yeah. oh, that's really, and you all, know what I mean? All I can do is share my experience. I can't, I can't speak for every person with Tourette's because every person's experiences are a bit different. On this project, if we make it, um, I have a producer partner, another wonderful filmmaker who also has Tourette's and our experiences are quite different growing up with it but there's a lot of similarities and he and I have been able to talk and jam on on the commonalities of experiences and think about ways of expressing them on film um, so so we can tell the audience what it's like to experience it not just watch somebody with it Um, but I can't I can't hope to make a film that's authentic to his experience living with it but hopefully you can relate to it. All I can mm. do is share my experience. Cause I think the more you, for me, the more I try to water it down to, to express an every, everyone's experience, the less interesting the film would be. I think that's, there has been for years, this, this push in movies to make the, the idea of the relatable character, um, the, the, um, the every man, the, yeah. the, the general, like the general, uh, this human that doesn't exist that represents a bit of everybody, but that <laughs> that doesn't exist. It forces you to figure out culturally who you want to say normal is. Um, mm. Who is a normal person? Well, that's the a pretty dumb concept to even start with. And what I love about movies like five the last five or six years, more and more mainstream, is films that find relatability through incredible specificity of experience. A character who whose life and world and viewpoint might be so 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 different than mine, but I can relate to them because of the basic shared humanity of us. I don't relate to them because they look like me or they act like me or sound like me. I relate to them because I can I can connect with the shared humanity and then connect to their life and experience that is so different than mine. And and that's something that I love about. Kind of mod, um, modern film of this this push for um, so much more diversity in storytellers in um, in who's driving and telling stories because it's just shown that we don't need this idea of the the everyman um, to have people relate to a character. It's just it's at least to me it's proven that that that, that was a fallacy that wasn't necessary for for so long. Mm. Now, I think the interesting thing about that is, you know, when you look at you, Ron, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you're creating that, was it always, you know, Jody? Like, you know, essentially it could be a man, it could be a woman. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really matter to some extent. But how, when you're creating it, when you're thinking of these ideas, does it always, you know, does the, the clarity of the character jump out straight away? Mm. Or is it like, all right, if someone was in this situation, oh, I'd be great. And then we do this and this. And then you think and be like, hmm, who would this someone be? And then you go, 
oh, let's make it a woman or let's make it a man or let's, you know mm. what I mean? Like, what is that? Yeah, so I wish I could say that there is like grand calculations behind all of it. But in, in you run, um, the Jody character wasn't, I first envisioned her based, based a little bit on a runner friend of mine. And, and because I was picturing this, this friend, um, Jody was a woman in my mind immediately. It wasn't any like higher, higher thinking or calculating. So because of that, um, having, uh, having, um, Trent, having the trainer be a man fit, uh, fit together. We didn't make a choice to make it a heteronormative, um, kind of connection, but that's what we I'd say that our bias led us to default to that. And we never had a conversation about that. In fact, mm. about the, the genders, the gender, it w- would it be gender opposites? Um, for Trent, I had a very clear idea in my mind of who that character would be. Um, as far as attitude, as far as character, um, his vibe. And it was based on like, basically kind of a, a kind of Chris Hemsworth and Thor kind of thing. Confident, a little bit cheeky, a um, little bit chill. Um, a bit of that kind of Chris Hemsworth um, surfer thing going on. And uh, the actor we, we cast, uh, Philip Mullings Jr., just he was the only guy who brought that. Who brought that kind of that kind of feel and attitude, and he just knocked his audition out of the park. Um, Jody, I did not have a clear vision of the personality of that character. In fact, one of the things that I I would love to, if if I were to go back, is to kind of reinforce more who she is as a human outside of her running world, because she was, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, a little, the character as written was a bit of a pawn to the story not a character who is driving her story. Um, so any personality and character of Jody really came through the performance from uh, Mayumi Roller, not through any brilliance in writing or directing. Um, uh, so yeah, I'd say Jody was less calculated. Trent was more calculated. Um, Mayumi, who played Jody, was an athlete. She was an Olympic athlete in uh, London 2012. Okay. Um, she was, um, yeah. She understood the the world and could bring this this arc of of like going from newbie to incredibly intense runner by the end, all through attitude, and micro body language, and it was she did a, an incredible job. We put her in baggier clothing at the start, and then tighter and a little bit more. Um, uh, clothing that exposed her physique more in the end to uh, to show that trajectory. So even though we didn't, she didn't, I mean, we shot the whole thing over the course of a week. So even though she couldn't go through a big transformation, we mm. we created a bit of the, the illusion of it. And I think it works works decently. It wasn't like Castaway with Tom Hanks starving himself um, <laughs> three months between shooting blocks. Um, but uh, yeah, and... Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything if there's anything else. I think with, with the character of Brenda, so Jody's friend, um, I think both the writer and I initially had a little bit more of a cliched idea of who that character could be, but um, the casting led us away from there, um, which is which is for the best. So yeah, it's um, 
in a way we we didn't calculate much and i think we're we're really fortunate with uh, the the people who were who came to casting and showed us the best version of the character mm mm and and do you think that's kind of maybe the best way to do it because then you're not confined and you're always kind of pick the best performance rather than no it has to be this you know what i mean whenever i i think i think um there always has to be somewhere along the lines a check of of um kind of internal biases to make sure you're not doing something kind of cliche because you're kind of ignorant of certain biases um so there has to be some space there to to be able to sit back and look or have people, other people, trusted people on your team check your biases. Um, but um, but being open in casting to what comes, I think is really important. When I, whenever I'm casting for a show, it's actually a really anxious process for me because until casting, a movie can be anything. I have my script and I can imagine anything in the world. Yeah. And then as soon as casting starts, I have to go from this blue sky, anything is possible to one thing is possible, this one face, this one person. So if I don't pick somebody who excites me or if we don't have somebody available who who fits my vision, it can be really emotionally difficult. Um, so when I'm casting, I find for each character, one of three things happens. So somebody walks into the room and they're they're either a version of what I envision. They're, maybe, they're, they're decent, they're pretty good. Um, they can do it. And they're a version of what was in my head. Sometimes you'll have nobody comes in anywhere close to what was in my head. So you have to kind of pick from a whole bunch of people who don't quite fit. And maybe you have to reimagine who that character is to who's available. And I'm talking about on on, on my budgets, even on big budget video games, sometimes that's, that's been the case um, because of who we have access to based on union um, unions or budgets. And then the third thing, and this is the amazing part in, in casting, and this happened in you run for sure, is somebody walks in who changes your mind about who the character is, kind of teaches you something new about the character that maybe you didn't see or you didn't realize now and gives you new opportunities and and defines the character for you. And mm. on run that happened in a way. I mean, um, Philip Mullings Jr. clearly looks nothing like Chris Hemsworth, but but he brought his he brought something new and different that nobody else had. He brought magic in his charisma, his attitude that where he could feel effortless, effortlessly charming while bring a little bit of that edge and calculation to it. Um, and uh, yeah, you just have to be open to people changing your minds about about characters because you're you're bringing on collaborators. you're bringing on co-workers whose job it is to create a character not just to do exactly what you say so you have to allow them space to dig as deep as they can go into the character and show you what they come back with um, i think that goes for anyone on the crew um, as a director if i'm making the, everyone's choices for them people's work can only be as good as my best effort divided by all those people if I point them in the right direction, give them as much space and as they can take up, provided that you know they, they understand the vision and the direction, yeah. then they can bring so, so, so much more than just like somebody dictating from on high what to do in the job. 
Uh, okay. And with the end of you run, was that always the end? Like, or did, and did you kind of figure, let's leave it a little amb amb ooh, ambiguous. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one. <laughs> Ambidextrous, uh, amphibious. <laughs> um, that was that was the ending as scripted, yeah. Because, uh -huh. yeah, I'm watching him just like, oh, what's she going to do? Right? Because you've, up to that point, it feels like she, she's been on this journey, this, this realisation of what she actually needs. And then... It's just this thing thrown out there and it's just like, and you see that contemplation and it's just like, oh shit, what's she, how's she going to go here? I mean, every time I try to delete my Instagram app and say, I need to just get rid of this. It's too addictive. Somehow it ends up back on my phone. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, yeah. That was... You know, I think it's that whole thing of, you know, that w it was that question. It'd be like, did you d really do it without me? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because even when you break it down and you go, oh, no, that last period, you, you know, she, yeah, she went out on her own. But to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So it's what, just like. Yeah, what did she want at the very beginning of the movie? I think she want. Did she want a little distraction? Did she, yeah. What did she get at the end versus what did she get at the beginning? And then you can start unraveling if you want to be all like film school about it. Who was the protagonist of the movie? Who had the clear goal and who won the movie in the end? Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. Mm. So you've made all of these short films now. Yeah. And so now you're like, oh yeah, I feel it's, I'm going to do a feature. So what, what is it about now? Like, what? how is it, you know, now you've come to this thought of, okay, I'm, it, it's time to go bigger. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, my career path started in film and TV, um, started in both film shooting and post-production in Vancouver, Canada, um, on short films, TV service work, low budget features, a huge range of things. And then I got caught up in the video game business for years. I say caught up. I was very lucky to, to work on some wonderful games, some telling stories in games, directing cinematics, directing narrative. Um, and my heart was always in uh, the film world. I love games. I love the interactive. And I yeah, I got to work on big, cool franchises like mm. Mass Effect, um, Little Big Planet, some uh, some Tom Clancy stuff, some a, a handful of other things. So my goal was to see: can I translate that that experience and that those career heights into the film world? So shortly before COVID, I said, "Okay, I'm going to make some short films to see if I still know how to make movies. Um, what what's changed in the business? What's the same? What's different?" What do I need to learn? Uh, where do I need to grow? Where are my blind spots? And I, I made three. Sh I directed three short films. I produced another one uh, with uh, with one of my creative partners, Ray Ragavan. And um, so the goal of these shorts were to basically practice, and then um, 
apply those learnings to bigger projects. I mean, shorts are wonderful. Nobody makes money on shorts. Everyone yeah. loses money on shorts. Um, and I learned so, so, so much. Um, secondary goals, sure. If I win some awards, that's great. I mean, you always hear stories of somebody who, who does a short film and it gets turned into a feature and now they're directing um, Black Panther. But yeah. that is an uh, utter anomaly and it's not a career plan. It's wonderful if it happens, but it's not a plan. Mm. Um, but but building up a, a portfolio is important. Having having a live action portfolio was critical. I Coming out of games, I could get meetings with folks about live action work, um, directing, MOW stuff, commercial stuff. But people would look at my demo reel and say, I don't understand. Who are these computer people on your demo reel? Are you programming these things? Like, no, I'm I'm on set. I'm directing. I'm built. I'm running a writer's room. I'm telling mm. stories. And um, this is mocap. These are actors. We're telling stories with cameras and performances. But sometimes in the film world, the language doesn't translate over. So building up a live action portfolio was also a, a critical piece for me. And um, and Swipe You Run as well as a previous short, Dearly Beloved, has helped immensely with all of that. The other thing that's happened um, is I'm doing a lot of visual effects work these days. I was always in the CG visual effects world, but I not only did I do visual effects on Swiped and You Run, I've been doing them on a handful of other short films, and it's translated to most of my work um, over the last couple of years. Um, my my um, uh, or a lot of my my revenue work. So while I'm doing writing while I'm building these shorts, the revenue work is coming out of learnings from short films, which is visual effects. I'm doing um, some on handful of TV shows right now, some of which hopefully will be out later this year. Um, other short films did a, a, a piece for, for Honda last year, which was actually um, very similar to the You Run and Swiped world, looking at what augmented reality in cars in the future will look like. Um, so even though I haven't taken the shorts into the feature world yet, I've been able to, um, to um, keep building my career off of these short films um, and mm. bills, which is a wonderful privilege that I know not everyone gets to do. Uh, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Because it's just like, yeah, you've been able to, you know, come in, like create that reel to, to get you to the place where you can, you know, then do that next step. But then also this, use these new skills to, you know, make money on top of that. Yeah. And that's pretty incredible. Yeah. If I get to spend half the year doing visual effects or other client work and the other half the year writing, that's a pretty great place to be because like I said, I want to do the, I want to do features. There's two avenues of features. Well, there's, there's the, um, Work, director for Hire Avenue, which is one one thing to pursue, and then there's my own project, which is another thing mm. to pursue. Both of those are are definitely a path forward. Um, for my own projects, I got to write the darn things, and it's work. It's time. These these things can take a long, long time to develop. You don't just sit down for a week and bang out a feature. Some people do. I don't. Mm, mm. Yeah, that that's always interesting. Like talking to people about, you know how long it takes them to write something and some yeah you sometimes you be like oh so how long did it take to to write this film you're like oh yeah just like you know 
about a week? And you're just like, yo, what? And then someone else, if you're like, oh, I worked on it for about three, four months. And so it's always interesting to see that process mm-hmm. with people. Yeah, it's even in, in uh, like I was saying, my writing partner and I watch a lot of things and we don't dissect the scripts, but we really talk about what resonates and what works. And we're watching the last season of Doctor Who and watching some of these scripts and these stories and thinking, oh, there's some, there's ideas here. The ideas aren't bad, but the writing and the construction feels so, so, so sloppy. It feels like a first draft script and it needed more cook time. It needed more drafts. It needed, you needed to be able to stand back and say, okay, I like the idea. Let's mm. actually make this work now. And then um, last month I was reading an interview with um, the, the showrunner, Chris Chibnall for the latest season of Who. And he was saying it was literally that, literally because of time pressure, time crunch, COVID and many other things, some of the scripts that went to camera were literally a first draft, literally a first draft. And I had like, I I know what a first draft looks like. I write Mm. them and they're terrible, but they're the, (laughs) but that's, that's the step you take to get something great. You get something down, you get a, you do a vomit script, you get your ideas on paper, you get them out of your head. Then you can sit back and say, what works? What doesn't? What do I want to keep? What needs to change? And you evolve it and you evolve it and you evolve it. And then I take it to friends who read and read, read the script and say, okay, read this. Let me know what you think. And I'll ask them three questions. I ask them, where are you excited? Where are you bored? And where are you confused? And those three questions usually tell me everything I need to know about what's working in the script or not. And anyone, they don't have to be a writer. They don't have to be an expert. They can tell me that because I want to know how you react to it as an audience member. Mm. Sometimes I'll, I'll give scripts to writer friends. And instead of telling me how they react emotionally to it, they'll tell me 20 things to change. And that, <laughs> what do I do with that? Then I've got to figure out what problem are you solving? Mm. What problem do you see? And is that actually a problem? Are you trying to solve a problem based on this my script or based on what you think the script should be. And then I have to like reverse engineer their solution to figure out what problems they're solving. And sometimes it's, it's, it's more challenging getting feedback from writers than non-writers because people try to solve all the problems in your script rather than give you an emotional reaction to what's working or not. Um, but getting a, like a whole bunch of different views is so essential because your readers are like your first audience. Um, you just got to go over and over and over and over again until, until you can't anymore. Um, so I think that's the mm. only way to get the quality. And when I look at, like I was saying earlier about Star Trek Discovery, some wonderful ideas, but it felt like each script could have used one or two more drafts um, just to really refine some of the, the execution of the ideas. And I think yeah. in a way, a strange new worlds, has an easier problem to solve because they can write a lot of scripts in isolation, whereas Discovery and Picard, you kind of got to nail 10 scripts at a time um, for a season. And when you go back to Deep Space Nine and those long arcs, the writers would talk about how hard that was to to nail the continuity of all that. Um, And it's no easier these days. Um, We're just more used to that, uh, used to that kind of work. Yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, um, J. Michael Stransky kind of wrote most of Babylon 5 on his own. 
Mm. So there, there, you'd have like Neil Gaiman wrote one episode here and there, but I think essentially Stransky wrote it, yeah. which then enables you to, you know, I mean, because now you know the flow, you know the story, you know the beats, all of this. But in yeah. a writer's room, we have well, yeah, all... well, on, on DS Nine, Deep Space Nine was a writer's room space, so you had the last nine episodes all all one big continuity here, and it was all. Um, and it was a bunch of different writers. They all worked together. They all broke the stories together, but then they'd go off and work on their scripts on their own because they had to pump out 25, 25 episodes a year and they yeah. were under an enormous time crunch. So if somebody on of the, the last nine episodes, if somebody changed something in episode three, they might have to go back to episode one or one or two and fix those scripts up. So everything mm. that I wrote affects everywhere. I mean, of course, that's the same in modern um, modern series TV today. Um, but it's um, but it is hard, regardless of of uh, of what you're doing. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's my personal opinion that Picard, that especially Discovery, but also Picard to a degree, struggled with that. Um, I think for some people, it, the shows probably worked really well. Um, they they worked okay for me. Um, so I wonder what was the what was there something in their process that didn't give them quite as enough time to really uh, to really work those scripts a little bit more or or were they happy with where they got to? Um, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it is always it's an it's, it's an interesting thing I find sometimes because as you said, you sometimes watch something you think, it feels a little rushed or like that doesn't feel as developed as that thing. And then you listen to interviews and like, oh yeah, it was a struggle. We were pushed. We were, and it does kind of, yeah, you, you can see it. Right. So that makes it really interesting. But then other times there, you don't hear any of that. So it's just like, yeah, I wonder what the, what it was but as you said look sometimes these things don't work for you but they work for other people yeah know? even in, in you run we have examples of that i mean the um we had to there's two major sequences that we changed uh one after we shot most of it and the other i'm um, shortly before we shot at the the end so the two race scenes the 10k and the the marathon um trent was scripted to be through the entire 10k scene but when we filmed it, the actor wasn't available and we rewrote it to have uh, him absent, which when I watch it, it works and it resonates mm. a lot better. It gives her moments where she's alone. The marathon was originally scripted to be in a big marathon, like with a bunch of people. And ultimately, we realized we, we couldn't afford it to, to set one up on our own with all the people that we'd want. But and it was also it wouldn't work with our schedules to try to shoot within an existing event. And then ultimately we realized it is so much more of an extreme experience to do a marathon on your own versus with mm. a group. So both of those things through those, that adversity, I think made it a more interesting, better film. And so sometimes those, those restrictions help you and sometimes they don't at all. Um, there is one scene, uh, one, sorry, one shot in you run that we filmed at the end of COVID. We didn't have access to, to, to fill up through most of COVID um, for one pickup shot for him. And there is one shot that we filmed like a year and a half later from everything else. And we didn't know if we could get that scene or not. At one point I was trying to figure out, can I, can I learn how to deep fake 
to do a face replacement on a body double for that shot. And I learned how to. Oh, damn. Okay. We, um, we weren't sure if we could get Philip for, um, for all the ADR we needed, including that scene. And we were talking with uh, Reese Beecher, the folks in Ukraine who are now known for uh, doing Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader's voice in, um, in Kenobi and in Mandalorian. Uh... And before, before, so they had been working on these shows, but they, they couldn't quite tell us about it all yet. Um, yeah. And found, okay, that's an option. Ultimately, we didn't need any of it um, because we were able to finally connect with Philip when he was between shows. He's, he had just finished shooting First Kill, um, which finally uh, went up on Netflix last week, shot up to number two, um, a, a vampire, a teen vampire slaying show. Mm. Like I'm excited to watch that. And um, so, yeah, we had a ton of problems behind the scenes trying to finish this movie um, during COVID. Um, you... you one hopes you can't tell at the end, but there, but yeah, some of those problems were in the script. Some of the problems were in the, um, were in the production. Mm, I mean, that is like the interesting thing about that is, uh, yeah, I do think it works with him not being there in a 10 K. Mm, yeah. Right? But what is kind of now I'm thinking like, so what would happen if he was available? Right. And you could have shot him in. So do you shoot it, look at it and go, yes. Or do you shoot it and go, actually, let's remove like what would have happened? You know what I mean? This so, is great the way it is. Yeah. I when I look at a movie like Michael Bay's Transformers movies, I see somebody who has no restrictions. He can do whatever he wants. And that's not always the best thing. Sometimes mm. restrictions and um, compromises create challenge where creativity can emerge and you're forced to really see what's actually important here. What's the core of this and get rid of everything else. I think that's why a lot of often lower mid-budget movies can be so amazing because they force you to focus on the core of what's absolutely essential. If you're thinking that way. Um, so I just lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? Um, yeah, so, but then on the other side, you have uh, movies like uh, the, the Marvel MCU films who have a process of iteration. They're able to build their movie and then they have a bunch of budget aside for pickups. They can see the film, they can see what's working, what's not working, and then very surgically, very strategically enhance sections. And not just with VFX, but with um, new shots, new photography. That's all planned for. They know the best. The best way to make a great movie is to get a really good rough draft and then polish it, not the, the traditional way of shoot everything, hope for the best, and never plan to go back and grab anything else. So I think a lot of their quality comes from constant iteration, constant evaluation, constant um, checking of assumptions. And, um, and I think there's, there is uh, an idea out in the... You know, metasphere right now that if somebody does pick up shots they're called reshoots and they're called a mistake they screwed up the movie they got to fix it yes. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a really harmful idea because nobody would say we did a first draft of a script we screwed it up now we've got to rewrite it no of course you don't <laughs> say that and if you have the opportunity to continue polishing and iterating on your film in pickups the way um, the way 
Marvel does. I think that's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful um, opportunity. Um, mm. Video games are built that way. You get something roughed in and then you polish and polish and polish and polish. Um, when you look at, uh, and Force Awakens, I listened to the, uh, the Star Wars um, director's commentary of that, that a lot of the close-ups in that movie are pickups. So there's a lot of scenes with Ray and Finn they, they shot everything on location, they roughed it in, they found the general beats of the scenes, but in the editing, they realized we want, now that we got to the end of the shoot, we have found the chemistry between these characters. So let's pick up strategic close-ups to reinforce the chemistry of the characters. And I love that chemistry. So a lot of that they found through iteration over time. Same thing with Han and Leia. All the scenes with Han and Leia, most of the wide shots are from early in the shoot, most of the close-ups, are from pickups near the end of the shoot because they were able to see what really worked and refine that um, for um, based on what they learned throughout the whole shoot and through editing. And I think that's a great way to do that if you can afford it. Obviously, Disney has mm. the cap for it. Most movies don't. Yes. Um, but if you can, it's it's a wonderful way to, uh, to, to iterate until you have it. Great. That doesn't mean be sloppy with your script. It doesn't mm. mean start shooting your movie before you have a script ready, because that happens too. And yes. then you're in big trouble. Um, but I, yeah, I think the idea that that pickups or doing more shoots after the main shoot means there's a problem is, uh, yeah, it is a harmful idea. I think it's, if you do it well, it's an amazing opportunity to continue iterating. Mm. You, are, you are very correct though with that, because it was always, you'd always hear it reported. You'd look at a site like Dark Horizon or something like that, and you'd be like, problems on set. You know, like, oh, they've had to go back and reshoot this. And yeah, there's rumblings that this has happened. And it's always been looked at that, yeah, it's problematic. But then you listen to people like um, Kevin, I always say Feige, but I don't know if it's... Kevin Feige. Feige, okay. Feige, um, Feige. I'm probably, I, my pronunciation is dreadful. Uh, but um, yeah, you listen to him talk and the way that, you know, breaks it down and explains it. Yeah, it's as, as you just said, it makes sense. It's just like, no, no, no. It we're just fine tuning these parts and we plan for that. And yeah. when you hear it, you'd be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you? You know, but yeah, it, it's this weird thing where we want to look at things sometimes and be like, oh, there must be an issue. There's definitely a problem with that, which is insane. Mm. Um, one thing I want to ask you, Ed, what, like, because you, you know, as you said, look, you've done TV, right? You, you're doing these films, you've done video games, right? What for you is the, the, the kind of big difference between them all? You know what I mean? Because, like, it's all storytelling in some regard, right? So there's must be these transferable skills that you you take across all of them. But are there any like key things that are like very unique just to that format? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk about interactive fiction versus non-interactive fiction. So movies. Everything you're doing to make a movie is um, at the service of the story. People go to a film, go to a TV show 
for for story to be swept away engaged with characters to lose themselves in that, in that world and the characters when you're making games when you're making interactive fiction the interaction the you as a character you as a player having agency in the world is what you go there for the story is at the service of the interactive so when i'm a writer on a game when i'm a narrative director on the game everything i'm doing is at the service of the game so the story will change and modify and alter as needed based on the kind of experience we're trying to give the player um, interactively whereas in in um, uh, movies and TV, everything you're doing is at the service of the story. Whereas the, in games, the, the story is at the service of something else. Now, mm. there are games that are very story-focused, very story-driven. And sometimes those, um, those scales do tip. You, you're creating a game that, you, that evokes an experience or a mindset. There's some wonderful indie games that get you in the mind of, get you in the kind of the evoking certain experiences of, of, of things that are, um, that, that are very hard to describe in any other way. But generally, yeah, generally it's story. Games are, are very rarely at the service of story and it's vice versa. That's what I would yeah. say is the core for me. That's the, the absolute core um, fundamental difference between the two. No, and then the craft of how you tell that story in the different mediums is so dependent on the kind of game that you're making. Every kind of video game, every genre has different ways of telling stories, different entry points. How do you relate to the protagonist? How does the protagonist relate to the world? Does the protagonist change like you do, in, like they do in a movie, or is the protagonist the agent of change to the world, um, where you don't really change? The Mass Effect series, for example, Commander Shepard didn't really change, but his actions changed the world. Whereas a movie about Mass Effect, if they would have Commander Shepard, which I feel would be a mistake because there is no one Commander Shepard, um, that movie might have that character changing. And I think, I haven't seen the Halo TV show, but I'm wondering if they gave the, the Master Chief character a character arc. Because in the games, Master Chief, the character never changed. Mm. The world changed through their actions. Yeah, I, I heard that they're removing the helmet. I mean, that's, I, I believe I've, I've read that somewhere, that that was one big thing that's going to be different. They're going to have the, the helmet um, come off and you'll see the face. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Because Paramount, I think it just hit on Monday over here. Or maybe it was at the weekend. But, yeah, it's only just kind of come. And I'm like, oh, I might check it out. I think I'm going to wait for uh, all of Halo to come out and then I'll, I'll, I'll do a little trial and, and, and uh, yeah, probably end up with another friggin' streaming. It's about. been out here for a little while, but it's, it hasn't quite risen up on my list. There's way too much to watch. <laughs> I know, right? It's, I haven't done Kenobi yet. I, I was going to start it the other day and then I was just like, ah, oh, I've got these films I need to do. And, uh, I absolutely loved Kenobi. It was wonderful. So, oh, okay. Okay, that's it. Yeah, because I've, I've enjoyed everything else. I, I finished Moonlight the other, you know, recently. And I really enjoyed Moonlight. Really enjoyed Moonlight. Um, I like the fact that they kind of steeped it in Egyptian mythology, you know, and it wasn't, 
it wasn't what you see, you know what I mean? Like stuff like Wonder Woman, that you know, it's kind of embedded in kind of Greek mythos, but no one really looks Greek, you know what I mean? And, and like all the other stuff around it, but with Moon Knight, you, everyone does kind of, you have a lot of Egyptian actors and actresses involved, the music, you know, the aesthetics, you just have that feel to it. And I really love that because it made it different to Hawkeye or, you know, Cap and Winter Soldier and these other things that we've seen. You know, I, so, loved yeah. how, I loved how that one started. The first couple episodes with the multiple personalities was really intriguing. What I found once they moved to Egypt is I was less interested in the character. I wasn't as connected with um, the Moon Knight character nearly as much. Um, and mm. it felt more, in some ways, tradi like traditional Marvel, big, like big um, historical mysteries and and gods fighting amongst themselves, um, rather than the interesting psychological mystery in the first couple episodes. Um, but I, but yeah. I did love what you're talking about having like Egyptian music, um, Egyptian um, performers, elements of those those cultures. Although I, there is far, far more to Egyptian cultures than just pyramids. And oh, which, yeah. is what I love, which is what I love about Miss Marvel. I've seen a few episodes now um, that it's, yeah, there's some superpowers, but it's shown me a Pakistani American family and that culture in a certain time and age of a character that I've never really seen on TV before. And it's shown me new interesting cultural aspects, regardless of it being a superhero show or not, that's interesting. And I found mm. the, I found the the Moon Knight story, in some ways, the cliche what felt like a, a cliche Western idea of Egypt rather than uh, a modern, authentic Egypt. I, right, I, right. That's, I, I don't know um, how correct that assumption is, but it but the, the last episode with a bunch of Egyptian giant gods punching each other felt more classic Marvel than most of the, the Marvel TV shows had that, um, until that point. So I didn't yeah. love it. Yeah, I, I will definitely, I do agree with that, that the beginning is more interesting with that kind of character breakdown, right? Mm -hmm. that, that kind of look at it. And yeah, it does then become, you know, big people fighting and all of that. I was very intrigued that the, uh, the last episode at the very end, when, because, you know, if you know Moon Knight, it's multiple personalities, but we don't see multiple personalities. And then there's that little thing at the end and you're like... I, I don't know Moon Knight at all outside of the TV show. Right, right. Okay. I'm, I am looking forward to Miss Marvel, though, because I did... I read the early comic book series by um, G. Willow Wilson. And as you said, it's this really nice look at this um yeah pakistani family right mm -hmm. and it's and you get the superhero element but it's not that's not the the the, the be all end all of it mm -hmm. it's this girl trying to find a way like does she like this boy what's happening with a friend group and that's very compelling so yeah it's been really well done it's translating the show beautifully from, from oh, yeah so i really should get uh, going back to work Yes. I, yeah, but I really appreciate... Firstly, I appreciate the fact that you've bared with me all this time, Ed. Um, so apologies for that. But, hey, really appreciate this time. 
really interesting conversation. And I hope we can continue it when your next projects drop. I'd love to. Okay. Let people know where they can um, keep track of what you're doing, right? So you can find me on various platforms. Um, Edward J. Douglas on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Vimeo. Um, so you can see my uh, um, you can see my work up on Vimeo there. And um, Kevin, you'll will you be able to connect some links to you run trailer into Swiped as well? Oh yeah, all all the links, everything like that. You can keep track. You can follow. You can watch. Just go to the episode information, people, and definitely keep track of Ed because man, he's creating some really interesting stuff. Thank you. That's very Hi, kind man. of you, Kevin. Hey, no worries. Thank you again for your time, and yeah, I look forward to uh, what you do next. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Take it easy. Oh, cats are where you go. In place, dreams, please. Don't follow this dream, man. Yeah, you, you know this in big things coming. Big things coming, right? And this is just great. This is just great. So we've got one more conversation for you people. And we do not want to miss it. If you haven't listened to um, our first our first a little con row. What are you doing? You know what I mean? Go check that one out for sure because you know what I mean? It's great. Daniel Glenn Barber. Yeah, Dan's the man. So you definitely go check that one out.